God is great. Amen? And I, I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed the Christmas season to reflect on who God is and just to remember what He's done for me and to think over the last year all that He's done for me over New Year's and, and uh, make some resolutions for next year. Did anyone make any resolutions this year? I'm the only one. Out of all that, I'm the only, okay, all right. I see a few, okay, I see a few that are just too, too embarrassed to raise their hands. No, the Lord is doing some great things, and I, I think we, uh, we can project that the Lord's going to continue to do some great things as well. If you can't tell from the music this morning, the theme has to do with the greatness of our God. Uh, we're going to continue in uh, Joshua chapter 8 is where we, uh, we left off at the end of chapter 7. So if you can uh, turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. And uh, as, uh, as we get back into this journey with Joshua. And I want us to, to just have a little review of where Joshua has been as we, as we hop back into this. To kind of get back into where we were. If we think through the life of, of Joshua, it began actually in Egypt. He went through the slavery phase with the Israelites. Think about that for a moment. He, he, he grew up, uh, he grew up as, as a slave. But then he also went through what we call the, pl- the plague phase, the phase where God was demonstrating his power all, over all of the gods of Egypt. And Joshua witnessed to that as a young man. Then we have the Red Sea event. Remember the Red Sea event? where they were leaving Egypt because of the plagues. They come to the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. The Egyptian army's following them, and the Lord opens up in a miraculous way. He opens up the Red Sea, and they cross on dry ground. Not only that, the Egyptians make the greatest military blunder of all time, and they follow them. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't follow that order, but they did. They followed them, and the Lord swallowed them up with the Red Sea. And Joshua witnessed that. Joshua saw that. Then they went through the wilderness phase, and, uh, and remember Joshua and his friend uh, Caleb? They were two of the, the only two spies that came back with a good report because he witnessed all of the great things of the Lord and said, we can do this, we can take the promised land. Uh, the, the people were not ready for that, so they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but even there, God took care of them in miraculous ways. It says that, that uh, they did not have to resole their shoes in 40 years. That uh, might sound really weird, but I did uh, read, or I uh, saw on uh, TV, actually, where they said the American Indians had to resole their shoes around every five days. <laughs> then you realize how miraculous that is. But not only that, they could visibly see God's presence while they were in the wilderness. They had victory over their enemies. God was present in miraculous ways, and Joshua witnessed all of that as well. Then they come to the Jordan River where, where the water once again is opened up and they cross on dry ground. Then they go to Jericho. They march around it and we see God miraculously bring down the walls of Jericho. And Joshua witnessed that too. If anyone should know about the greatness of God, who was it? It's Joshua, right? And then they go to Ai. They send a few thousand people and they failed. Remember that? And they failed. And that's where we left off, was at, uh, at the end of that failure, Achan had sinned. Achan's sin is now dealt with, and we come to chapter 8, and, uh, and we see the a turning of the tide here. Let's, uh, let's look at uh, verse 1 and 2 of Joshua as we, and as we go back into the conquest phase of the Israelite history. Verse 1, verse 2 of chapter 8. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, Take all of the people of war with you, 
and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you do to Jericho and its as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. Well, here we have a, a really a tale of two different battles. You've heard the story, a tale of two cities. Well, this is one city, two different battles. The first, uh, the first battle, I'll just call it AI one for now. All right, we'll just we'll, I'll refer to it as AI one from this point on. But AI one, and then there's AI two, and they have radically different results. Even though it's the same AI and the same people of Israel, there are some things that were different about those two. And so we, we have these two narrative stories set side by side so we can compare and contrast and see why they turned out the way they did. With AI1, one of the first things we noticed was that there was sin in the camp. That's how chapter one or chapter 7, verse 1 begins. It begins with there was sin in the camp. And who committed that sin? Achan. God had said with Jericho, he said, do not take the spoils of Jericho. This is your first fruit offering to the Lord. Don't take those things. Don't touch them. Leave them there. And he decided to provide for himself. And he, he took some of the devoted things. Secondly, we found that there was self-reliance among the Israelites. How do we know that? Well, all we have to do actually is go back to, to chapter 7, verse 2 through 4. Keep a finger in 8. We'll come back there. But in chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, we read... Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all of the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all of the people there, for the people of Ai are a few. So we see that numbers game that they were playing. Like, wow, we defeated Jericho. So Jericho is a much stronger city than Ai, so let's just send two or 3,000 people because we can handle this, right? And we talked about that for a a couple of weeks, and and we saw that self-reliance that they had. But we find a contrast when we come to chapter 8, and things are done differently now. For one, the sin of Achan was dealt with, right? If you read the last part of chapter 7, where's Achan? under a pile of stones at this point. He refused to repent, uh, out, even though God gave him multiple opportunities to repent, and he, he is, his sin is now dealt with. But did the Israelites learn their lesson about not trusting in numbers? That's one of the questions that we bring to, to uh, chapter 8. But notice what the Lord said. If you, uh, if you look uh, back at verse 1, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, but take how many of the people of war? All of the people of war with you. And arise and go up to Ai. And what we read, as we'll read when uh, we get through the rest of the chapter, that's exactly what they do. Taking all of the people. So all of the warriors went to battle. Why? Because no longer were they trusting in their own ability. They were just being obedient to God. Does that make sense? And they wanted to be there to see what God was going to do. And so God said, send everybody. Why? Because if you send a few, then they're going to get cocky. They're going to get conceited. And we saw that happen in chapter 7, and it didn't work out. The biggest difference between these two that we find is in the battle at Ai, one, we find that it ended up in failure. They ran out of there. 36 men died as they ran away from the people 
of AI, but in AI 2, where we find something radically different. We're going to find a victory in, in, uh, in number 2. So that's going to give us a, 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 a great insight into how God works and how victory comes about. I want to take a look, though, because in chapter, uh, chapter 8, the first, first two verses, we also see not only a contrast between the second battle of Ai and the first battle of Ai, but we find a contrast and a comparison between the second battle of Ai and what happened all the way back in Jericho. Uh, notice what it says in verse 2, And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only, with the, here's the, the contrast, it's spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So here we find a comparison between Jericho and the second, uh, second battle of Ai. The two different victories. In each case, what was the mandate? Remember what the mandate was when they went against, uh, against Jericho? It's very simple. It's the same mandate that we find here in chapter 8. It's basically to destroy them. Same mandate, same, same thing that God's asking of them. However, there is a difference. If we look at uh, chapter 6, keep your finger in 8. Look at chapter 6 one more time, verse 18 and 19. This was before um, uh, Jericho here. We read, and you, verse 18, by all means abstain from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and the gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And so they were told, leave the spoils, leave the gold, leave, leave all the precious metals, leave that alone that belongs to the Lord. It was a test of their faith to say, we believe that God has provided this now. We're going to continue to believe that he's going to provide for the future. Was it worth trusting in God? It sure was, because now he's saying, now that that has been obeyed, you're going back into AI, but something's different. What's the difference? Now, um, now they can keep the spoils of the land. And oftentimes, we want something and we strive for something. Maybe we even do things the wrong way to try and get what we want, when all along God has something better for us in mind, but we don't wait for him to do that. Have you ever been there? I know we, we've talked about that many times as a family. Sometimes we'll, we'll realize, oh, there's a need, and, and we, we go out and we get what we need to do, or we get what we need, and, uh, and then we find out that the Lord already had a plan to get us that in a much better way, and we wasted our resources on it. Does that make sense? We see that because we don't wait sometimes on the Lord, as they didn't wait on the Lord when they went into AI the first time. No direction from the Lord, they just went ahead. It's always a bad place to go when you're talking about following the Lord's directions. But in this case, they're told, now you can keep the spoils. All the things that you dreamed about, all the things that you lacked in the wilderness for 40 years, God's saying, I've got it, and it's for you, and, and, and you're going to have it. Another key difference that we see between Jericho and Ai is how victory came about. I find this very interesting because with, with Jericho, who did all of the work? Well, God did, didn't he? I mean, what did the Israelites actually do? What was their military strategy? The military strategy was, hey, let's, let's march around the city once. And then the next day, let's do it again. And the next day, and we do that for six straight days. And on the seventh day, we'll march around it seven times. And then, here it comes, we'll blow the trumpet. 
Does that sound like a great strategy to you? Humanly speaking, that is not because it has nothing to do with humans. It has everything to do with God. And God simply brought down the walls. We see God flexing his muscles, in a sense, in the Jericho narrative. And so we, we see God simply bringing down the walls. But what we're going to find in Ai is very different. And, and in fact, what uh, he says is that they were to lay an ambush. Now, is there a higher level of participation for the Israelites now that they're having to lay an ambush? In fact, the, des- the de- description of, of what God asked them to do with, with marching around the city in Jericho was very detailed. He told them exactly who was going to go in what order, where the ark was supposed to be. He gave them all sorts of detail. Now they come to Ai and he says, lay an ambush. A three-word description of their military strategy. Now, humanly speaking, I want you to put yourself in their sandals for a second and think, if that were me, we just lost to Ai, and now we're being asked to go back and we have a three-word military strategy, how many of you would say that evokes a lot of confidence? It doesn't, humanly speaking. It doesn't evoke a lot of, of confidence. In fact, um, let's look at verses 3 through 8 and see exactly how they took that information and what they did with it. It says in verse 3 of chapter 8, So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us at the first, um, or as at the first, we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing before us, as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be, when you have taken the city, that you shall set the city on fire, according to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. So it's an interesting strategy as we read uh, these verses. Basically, this is what the strategy was. You have Israel divided up in two teams. You have team one... And you have team two that's hiding somewhere behind some trees or somewhere close to the city, right? And so Israel then was going to approach the city just as they had done the first time when they lost. And they were going to be met with the resistance from the city of Ai. Just as they lost the first battle, they're going to actually pretend to lose the second battle. And they're going to turn around and they're going to hightail it out of there. Now, if you were the people of Ai... What would go through your mind? Hey, we beat them once. We beat them again. Because they are going to play the numbers game. They're going to say, hey, we've already beat them. We're 2-0. We're, we're two, two and oh. That's a pretty good record, right? So they're going to get conceited. They're going to get cocky. And what are they going to do? They're going to pursue them. And that, Because that, humanly speaking, that's a wise thing to do. In fact, where's your, what does your armor protect? It protects your front side. What does your shield protect? It protects your front. When, now, as soon as you turn around and you start running, what's wide open for them to shoot or slash or whatever they want to do? Your backside, right? So it makes sense. Hey, if we're chasing them, that even increases our chances. Let's do it. And it wasn't really a horrible decision, humanly speaking, but they followed the, the Israelites to do that. Meanwhile, what happens? Well, team two comes around and they attack the city, right? Ignore the cheesy graphics, I know, but you get the idea. 
right? So, but, but that was the strategy. Very different from what we see in Jericho. Is it not? Very different. In Jericho, the lesson that God was teaching them was very different. See, it has nothing to do with how good of a fighter uh, the, 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 mil- the military uh, personnel is. It doesn't matter. That doesn't, it's not what it's about. What matters is what God's trying to teach them through this. So in Jericho, he was showing them, you have to rely 100% on me. Just trust in me. You obey me, and, and it'll happen. Now God says, obey me, but I'm going to actually increase your participation. And he says, lay an ambush. He gives them the strategy. And then Joshua has to take that strategy, and he has to develop that strategy, and he comes up with this plan and, uh, to, to see if it's, uh, it's going to work. I want us to see and just step back for a moment and see how this is in the grand scheme of things, how God is building and building up the faith of his people. And if we see the big picture, we see how faith, part of building faith is is increasing our participation. It's stretching our faith in many ways. And think about how much faith did it take for the slaves in Egypt to see the plagues. How much participation did they have to have, did the Israelites have to have? Zero participation. God did it all. All they did was say, hey, we know the gods of Egypt, and hey, God's one by one picking off the the gods of Egypt. Oh, they worship Ra? Okay, he'll darken the sky, right? And we see that ten times, and all they had to do was sit back and watch, right? How about crossing the Red Sea? Did it take any faith to cross the Red Sea? took some. I mean, God opened up the waters and they walked across. They had, to take, they had to take the step of faith to say, I believe God is sustaining these walls. Of course, we just saw the plagues, so it makes sense, right? So then they take that step of faith and they, they go across. It does take a step of faith. In the wilderness, was there any participation on their part? Yeah, they still had to fight their battles. Yes, they still had to follow God where he went, but they could see his presence. How about when they crossed the Jordan River? What level of participation did they have to do there? One step more. See, remember in, in the Red Sea, God splits the sea and then asks them to walk across. With the Jordan River crossing, it's a little bit different, right? What did they have to do first? They had to take the step in the river first, and then God opened it up. Why is he doing that? He's stretching their faith. It's kind of like weightlifting. You know, it's, 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 you start small, and once you're able to do that, you're able to do a little bit more. And then you're able to do a little bit more. And then you're able to do a little bit more, right? It's, this, it's the way it is with our faith. And God is saying, all right, now I'm going to test your faith a little bit further. Then we come to Jericho. They had to risk a little bit more, participate a little bit more. They had to march around the city. That is a military threat, right? That's a risk. That takes more faith to do that. Of course, they just saw God do, do so many great things. It gives them the faith. God's building their faith. And then with Jericho, now you come to Ai, and God says, I'm not tearing down the walls this time. You just have to follow my strategy, and you have to develop the strategy. I'm just going to tell you, lay an ambush. You have to develop that, that strategy. And they have to build the strategy. Does that mean that God's less and less involved? No. Does that mean that God uh, is, is taking his hands off in the sense of saying, I, I have, it's up to you guys now, win or lose? No. 
Joshua said very clearly, the battle is still in the hands of the Lord. The Lord will deliver this city to you. The language is very clear. God is still providing 100% of the victory. But God is saying, I want you to participate so I can stretch your faith. Building our faith means we rely less and less on the obviousness or the obvious manifestations of the presence of God. Why? Because we trust him. We trust that he's with us. We trust that he's there. And we hear stories all the time of maybe people who are struggling with something and they say, Lord, just give me a sign. And maybe sometimes the Lord does. Have you ever heard stories like that? Yeah, sometimes the Lord does. And he, he, he does something in such a miraculous way that they say, wow, that was obviously God. And why? Because their faith is, is small. But then sometimes years go by and we wonder, why isn't God doing the same thing for me every time? And, and I, I prayed for his will in this situation and he didn't do anything to, to reveal it. And, and, well, yeah, he did. It was in his word, maybe, right? As we grow in our faith... Oftentimes we find the answer comes right here in his directions to us. And we don't need him to tell us, should we do something, do option A, which is bad, or option B, which is good. Why? Because the Bible already tells us. And maybe as a new believer, he might actually go out of his way to show us, but God will always ask us to go a little bit further. I had a friend recently tell me uh, that he encourages people in their reading, and he said, I always encourage them to read just a little bit over their head. Why? Because it stretches them. It stretches them. I'm telling you something. If you were really serious about growing your faith in God, it's not going to be easy. It's not a matter of saying, Lord, I turned on the faith switch, and now I have 100% faith, so I will trust you in everything that you ask me to do. No, it's, it's more of a process where God is going to say, I'm going to push your faith a little bit right now, and you're not going to like it. But if you do it, if you trust me, then you're going to be able to trust me for a little bit more. And guess what? He's going to push you a little bit more. I'm just being honest. Anyone been, been uh, saved for a long time that can say amen, that this is the way that it is? It is. And God will push you. He will trust. He will, he will, will, uh, will push you in different ways. But always when we look back, we say, I'm thankful for that because I learned. I, I have to be honest. I, had, uh, I have more faith now than the day I did when I left for Costa Rica as a missionary. Isn't that true? He pushed me to go to a culture where I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know how well I was going to do it. Do you think that tested my faith? It sure did. Coming back to the United States, that was a test. That was even a bigger test of faith, believe it or not. But you know what? As I look back and I can say with 100% certainty, God has proven himself. Everything we sang about this morning about God being great, it's true. I should get a few more amens in that. All right? It's true. God is great. And he does all of these great things. He's proven himself faithful so many times. So we should be willing to say, Lord, okay, stretch me. Stretch me in my faith. Well, what's the result? Uh, when, if we look at, uh, at uh, verses, eight, or verses 9 through 29, we read the story to see how it worked out for the Israelites. Let's see how well they stood up to the test. Verse 9. Joshua therefore sent them out. And they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. 
Now a valley lay between them and Ai, so he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, uh, all of the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Verse 14, now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people at an appointed place before the plain, but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made it or made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. In other words, they pretended to fail. Verse 16, So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Did it happen just as God said? God knew the mind of of the enemy. And that's the information he gave to Joshua and it worked. Let's continue. Verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it, and hurried to the city to set on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven, so that they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Imagine for a moment, though, people of Ai, they're following, they're thinking things are going really well, and uh, they think they've got victory. They're chasing the tails of the Israelites, and all of a sudden they look back and realize their home is on fire. So then they turn they think, well, which way do we go? Do we go this way or do we go that way? And all of a sudden, the Israelites are coming out of the city. Now they're surrounded. If there's one thing worse than having someone chase you, I think it's being surrounded, right? Verse 21, Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel some on this side and some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all of the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand, which he stretched out the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded to Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take this corpse, his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise it over a great heap of stones that remains to this day. What we find is that in, is the, in the resolution of this story is something that's it, it's a complete opposite of what we read in chapter 7. Complete victory. Every single person on the enemy dies. And God gives them a complete 
victory. There is an interesting thing in here, though. There's almost a new character to the story in verses 18 through 29. It's the spear of Joshua. What did God tell Joshua to do? Did he tell him to fight? No, he he told him to hold out his spear. We read that in, uh, in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand towards the city. We see the spear again a few verses later. Look at verse 26. Let me read uh, verse 25 to catch the context. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai, for, in other words, this is the reason why, for Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. What in the world's going on here? Uh, is, is it because of the soldiers who were actually fighting the battle, or is it because of Joshua? Well, yes, in a sense. Right? I mean, if it wasn't for the soldiers out there fighting the battle, obeying, doing what God asked, none of this would have happened. They wouldn't have had the victory. But it also, if, if it wasn't for Joshua holding out this spear, but what in the world does this even mean? Well, actually, the roots of this passage go all the way back to Exodus. And so if you want to turn there, keep a finger here in, in, uh, in, in uh, Joshua 8. But in Exodus chapter 17, they were fighting the Amalekites in Exodus 17 verses 8 through the end of the chapter. And listen to this story. It's very interesting, and I think you'll see the connection right away. Now Amalek came and brought, uh, or came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, so notice Joshua's part of the story here, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went, to the, went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that what happened? Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and, uh, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. What's the lesson of that story? I mean, even though they're fighting the battles down there, there's Moses raising his rod. Why did God have it work that way? And every time he'd bring the rod down, they'd start to lose. And every time they'd raise his hand back up, they'd start to win. It's to remind them who's really in charge of the results, right? It's to remind them that God's in charge... Now listen to this. This, this, uh, this is interesting too. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. So God, even when he was defeating the Amalekites, who's he thinking about? Joshua and Ai. And he's saying, write this down because this is a lesson Joshua's going to need. He says, write it down. And then he goes on to say, I will, uh, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
See, God, even in the past, is able to think about and know with certainty all of the events of the future. It's hard for us to imagine this, but yet God was still in control of the results from, from Joshua's perspective, whether Joshua's down in the trenches fighting the battle or whether he's from up on the hill looking over top, raising out his, his spear in this case, and we see that God is still in control. Now, you know, this is a very difficult concept for us to grasp because we're humans, right? We think either God can be in control and the people really aren't, uh, aren't involved. They really can't participate. Or everyone's, the people are participating and God's not really in control. In fact, um, this is where a lot of the, the Calvin versus Arminian debate comes from. Now, I am not going to try to an attempt to solve that issue in the next five minutes, right? <laughs> but where does the issue come from? Well, you have some, I'll call them the hyper-Calvinists, who say, who say you know, God, if God is in control, there's no way people can have an influence in anything. So it's just a perceived free will that man has, right? Well, you go to the opposite side and you have your hyper-Arminians who say, wait a minute, um, well, I know we have free will, and I know that we, what we do has an effect, so God isn't really in control. We have the ability to thwart the plans of God, when, and somehow the truth is really in the middle where God maintains his sovereignty even though people have to play their role. Isn't that true? And so however you try to put those concepts together, we have to understand both sides of that coin. And it, it is kind of like a coin where oftentimes we might look at the head of a coin and we know that the other side is tails, right? Because we can turn it and we can look at it. But is it possible to see both sides at the same time? It's very difficult, isn't it? Sometimes it's God's that way. It's, it's hard to understand that we have to obey. We have to do our role. But yet at the same time, God is completely sovereign and the result is completely up to him. Does that make sense? And we have to understand both sides of that coin and uh, that God is still always in control. I think the greatest example in scripture that I can think of is the life of Joseph, right? Remember in the life of Joseph, his brothers did wrong things. They sold him as a slave, but God used that to get him into the right country, right? Because God had a plan that involved using Joseph to save the world from famine, right? And so God was going to use him, but he needed him in Egypt. So he took advantage of the fact that these brothers, now how in the world did God do that? How did he know what they were going to do and make a plan for it? Guess what? I can't tell you the answer to that because he's God. He can do that. Amen? Now, when we begin to grasp that, I don't think we can really grasp it. I think we can just understand the concept of the greatness of our God. We just sang about it this morning. But it's incredible when you really think about it. And so the application of that, really, we need to, we need to work as if it all depends on us, but we need to pray knowing that it really all depends on Him. Amen? So we are still responsible for everything that God calls us to do, everything He tells us to do, and if we obey, then there are, are blessings that come from that. If we disobey, there are curses that come from that. Just as He spoke in Deuteronomy, that's true to this day. However... We have to always remember that God is in 100% control. And that ought to give us courage. We've been talking over the, the, the last few chapters about the difference between cowardice, conceit, and courage. And here we, find it, and we finally see it all kind of wrapped together in one package. 
when we think of the lesson of AI, here's what we find. Number one, we can only rid ourselves of cowardice when we deal with our sin. Remember the cowardice of Achan? In fact, it was cowardice because he thought, if I don't provide for myself, I'm not going to have anything. He didn't have the faith that AI was going to come. But did it come? It sure did. But we have to deal with our sin. We have to deal with it. If we, uh, if we try to conceal our sin, as Achan did, then what happens? AI 1 happens. We fail. We run away. And people die. People get hurt. Right? That's what happens. We also rid ourselves of conceit when we fully trust in God. Remember the Israelites, were, they, were, they dealt with the other end of the spectrum. They were conceited. Why? Oh, we only need about 2,000, 3,000 of us. That's all it'll take to defeat AI. No, wrong. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with God. When we fully trust in God, say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Oh, you wanted me to increase my participation this time? Okay, I'll do it. Last time we just had to watch you bring down the walls. Now you're asking me to to fight the battle? Okay, we'll do it. And then, then and then only, do we have reason for courage. Why? Because we know that God controls the results. When we're doing what God's called us to do, when our sins are dealt with, we have a clear conscience, that's when we can have courage. You want to have courage? You want to be able to go out into this world and, and have an influence to lead people to Christ, to help, people, help change our culture and reach the world for Christ? Do you want to do that? Well, it takes courage. But if you want courage, here's the two things we have to do. We have to get rid of our cowardice. Why? How? By dealing with all the sins. Have a clear conscience with God. And we need to get rid of any conceit so we don't start trusting in ourselves. But that we fully trust in God. God. What about you today? Is there any sin in your life that has yet to be dealt with? Is there something that maybe uh, you've just kind of hidden away, maybe even over the holiday season, you've just pushed it out of your mind? Or what guards have you put in place to keep you from sin? Right? What guards have you put in place to keep you from sin? And then when you do sin, do you confess it or do you hide it? And then here's the question of the day. Are you relying on yourself or on God? If it is on God, then what can you do? You can go forth with courage. Nothing can stop you. With, with God, all things are possible. With God, key words in that statement. This is how you do it. Let's bow our heads for a moment, close our eyes. I want to give you just a, a moment for self-reflection. I want you to think about yourself. Where are you in all of this? It could be that there might be some who, are, who have come in today and you're not 100% sure what this is all about. In fact, I want to just ask a question. No one else is paying attention, but just by raising our hands, I'm going to ask, ask you, if you know 100% sure that if you were to die today that you were going to go to heaven, would you just raise your hand? Okay, I see a lot of hands. Okay, put your hands down for a moment. If you were unable to raise your hand, you're not 100% sure, 
We have a God who is powerful enough to conquer sin. He conquered the grave when he sent Jesus Christ to pay for your sins. And you don't have to spend any, any more time in your life doubting where you're going to spend eternity. You could know that 100% before you walk out of these doors today. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just come up and come talk to me. And say, Pastor Dave, that's what I need. I need what you're talking about. Perhaps there are, there are others here who are lacking the courage that it takes to, to do everything that God's called you to do for one reason or another. Maybe there's cowardice or conceit. But for one reason or another, you haven't had the courage that, that God has promised to us. Well, if there's one thing that AI teaches us, it's that failure is the back door to success. They learn from that. If you're willing to humble yourself and learn from those lessons, God will put you on track. He'll bring you to victory. Remember, God takes even what we do wrong and he uses it for good. That's the sovereignty of our God. I'd like to invite you as we pray, if there's anything that God's dealing with you, you can come forward. Just kneel before the platform here and just pray to the Lord. It's between you and God. It has nothing to do with me or anyone that you're sitting next to. Just come forward. Dedicate that to the Lord and let God do a work in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you turn failures into victories. Oh, Lord, we'd love it if our lives were filled with stories of Jericho, stories of Red Sea, Jordan River, that we wouldn't have to go through the failures. But Lord, that's just not real life. You're growing our faith. Lord, if there's anyone in here that's working on growing their faith and you're trying to grow their faith, I pray that you do a work in their heart right now. If there's anyone in here who doesn't have that faith, pray that they would come and talk to me in just a few moments too. Lord, we dedicate the last few moments of our time together to letting you do a work in our hearts. So I pray that that's exactly what you'll do. And I pray this in Christ's name.